trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. So glad you could join me today. It's a fine day for some wrong think. There is plenty of wrong think to go around today. By the way, I have some wonderful sponsors who make this program possible. It would mean a lot to me if you would at least uh, click on the link I provide in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Check out hslammo.com, monticellocollege.org, lifesavingfood.com, and garagedoorproservices.com. Love each and every one of these sponsors. They do wonderful things, and they could help you. At least I hope they could help you or maybe someone you love. So check them out, do some business with them, and, and let's, uh, let's keep getting the truth out there. I'm kind of feeling energized today, and I have no idea why. It's not like I got a really restful weekend. It was, it's been crazy time for, for our families. We get ready for back to school, and everybody's getting that last hurrah, you know, taken care of. And Anyway, uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty nuts. But, man, I, I look at what's going on, the growing chaos, the growing political intrigue and economic uh, upheaval, and I feel encouraged, not because I think, hey, things are finally getting better and it's starting to shape up. It's, it's very clear that, that in, in many ways things are devolving and they're, they're taking a, a kind of a crisis path. I see that too. But I just have this sense, and I, and I can't shake this. Maybe, maybe I'm nuts because I think this way, but I just feel like this is a very pivotal moment in human history. And I don't think it's an accident that you and I find ourselves standing at this particular pivot point. I think that we're here because I believe that divine providence is at play and that we have a role to play, you and I. And I don't know what your role is. I'm not going to try and tell you, oh, yes, this is what you need to do. And, and be sure to vote this way, you know. Nope. My job here is just to encourage you to think as clearly and independently as you can. And, and, and on top of that, to encourage you. And to inspire you, hopefully, through some of the, the commentators that I share and the people I interview, to stand. Because really, that's, that is what's needed. And, and to, to drive this point home, I want to share some excerpts with you from the latest from Alan Stevo. I have watched him with great interest over the last couple of years and have seen this guy just emerge as a true leader in the sense that he's not creating legions of followers he is creating more leaders in his wake. That's the measure of what a true leader does. They don't create faithful followers. They create other leaders who go out there and create more leaders. Powerful stuff. And Alan Stevo has led the way on how to stand up against COVID tyranny. And it's interesting because he talks about, uh, he talks about you know, living in California, which some people, myself included, would look at as, ooh, wow, that's tough. That must be hard. That's like living in occupied territory or enemy territory. But he has a very interesting take on this. And it starts with a letter he got from a, a short letter from, from one of his readers in which he was responding to a column that Alan had written about uh, 10 Corona steps ahead. This is where we're going and where you will follow if you comply which was a piece that talks about the need to say no, the need to establish clear boundaries in your life, well-communicated, vigilantly defended. 
And this is what the reader said. A call to arms would happen way before these things happen, meaning the it, continuing to, to ramp up the COVID and, and other uh, controls that have been forced on us the last couple of years. A call to arms would happen way before these things happen, at least for me and my family. Growing up in a medical family taught things that made my brothers and me immune to the pandemic nonsense. Unfortunately, anyone exposed to the educational system over the last 30 to 40 years is dead meat. It's a culling. Thanks for printing the underlying methods. That's pretty, that's pretty uh, direct, right? Alan Stevo says, look, no matter, it never fails. No matter how people denigrate the state of California as lost or hopeless, it remains the state with the most conservatives in the country, the state with the most libertarians in the country, the state with the most devout religious folks in the country who know their rights do not come from paper or from man. And in the midst of those three groups and several others around the globe, a very powerful remnant is forming. He says, California may very well be the place with the greatest tyranny in the country. It may also very well be the place with the greatest freedom in the country. You see where he's going here? He says, the battle for the soul of our civilization takes place at these extremes and their convergence every day in the lives of many Californians. So he says, it's impossible to ignore the creeping evil. It's so imposing and in your face. And, of course, it presents people with a challenge. He says, you know, different Californians react differently. Some run to another state. Some hide in California. Others ignore the evil. Others combat it and walk in their own free existence. Now, he makes a point here that uh, I have to admit I, I really hadn't considered, but it makes a lot of sense to me. He says, in the red states, there's a very prevalent go-along-to-get-alongism that's unknown quite the same way in California with its de facto disrespect of authority and its live-and-let-live lifestyle that's so pervasive, no matter how much the authorities tout the mandates, you will see the mandates forever disregarded. There will never be 100% compliance in any corner of California the way there was such obedience of the greatest lies in some of the red places in 2020 and beyond. Boy, I'll tell you what, living along the Wasatch Front in Utah during uh, the, the peak of, you know, 2020, holy cow! He's right. And his point here is simply this. A man who wakes up to a baptism by fire every morning and makes it back to his bed safely with his values defended is a special man. So when you think about it from the standpoint of, look, that yeah, these people in California, well, they want to stay there. They're dumb enough to stay there. That's their problem. Some of them are becoming exactly the kinds of, uh, of diamonds under the intense heat and pressure of having to deal with tyranny so openly every single day. That's, there, there's wisdom in viewing it that way. And, and the point that he's talking about, he's not trying to make the case, yeah, therefore California is you know, the best and the rest of you guys suck. He's just saying that uh, in the hospitals of Alabama and New Hampshire and the courthouses of Florida and Idaho, the same evil exists that exists in these places in California. But he says the difference is that every single freedom fighter in California sees the evil, knows that it's there, and knows that it's his duty to combat evil for his own self-preservation and for the preservation of his posterity. And he says, in other places in this vast land we call the United States, I simply can't say the same. I know that kind of stings, but I think he's right. His point, though, is... If you want to be an effective advocate for freedom, you've got to train until the fundamentals of freedom become second nature. 
And he says this is something that the people in California, again, those who are dedicated to freedom, they get the chance to train every single day. And he reminds us, the football coach, the drill sergeant, the martial arts instructor, they all put their disciples through the repetitions because they know such discipline in the basics will become second nature to them. And that second nature discipline in the basics allows their students to focus instead on the details that make one a world-class athlete or world-class warrior. So if you apply that principle to the folks in California, it's not once a year, once a month, or once a week in California that you look evil in the face. That's an everyday occurrence. And his point is, what you curse as hopeless is the same blessing that is actually helping others grow resolute. That's powerful. Now, he goes on about, uh, you know, when the knock on the door comes, it's going to be too late. He says, if you really want to be a warrior and fight on the front line and to, to stand for the cause of liberty, he says, you've got to be the kind of person who is so in tune and so ready to stand for your freedom that it never gets to the knock on the door. And he's talking specifically about like gun confiscation, gun confiscation. But he says it comes from doing the repetitions that matter most. So even if you're a master marksman, he says you put in 200 rounds through that rifle every month, you know, and you're out there getting practice. But he says, how much practice are you getting at saying no to authority? How much practice are you getting in the repetitions that really matter? This is a good point. He says, the California reader who sent that letter, he goes, I know what his repetitions look like. About 200 a month, 200 times a month, evil stares him in the face and he takes authority over it, moves it out of his way, and continues on with the business that he set out to do. That's powerful. So you need to uh, you need to get out of the well. I'm going out in a blaze of glory kind of thinking, and instead, practice saying no. Practice asserting your authority over your life to the point that uh, you are just an undeniably free person. It's never going to get to the point that they come to your door because you are many steps ahead of the people who would do that kind of thing. It's an awesome essay. I hope you'll read it. It's linked in the show notes. The key takeaway, though, is that you got to remember, this is much more than just a literal and physical battle. There is a spiritual aspect, and you've got to have a strong spirit and a clean conscience to know when to say no and to make it stick. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. It was my privilege last week to have a little visit with Seth, who is the owner of Garage Door Pros. They're one of my sponsors, and I strongly encourage anybody living in St. George, Utah, Cedar City, Utah, Mesquite, Nevada, Colorado City, Arizona, please consider calling Garage Door Pros. You can call them at 435-525-2773. You will find that they are a local company that installs services and repairs garage doors, doors that are made right here in America. They can give you insulated garage doors. They do commercial service as well as residential, and they'll give you a much faster lead time than other companies can give you. And if you really want to treat, go to their website, garagedoorproservices.com, and look at what their satisfied customers are saying. 
I mean, every business is like, oh, yes, we'll take very good care of our customers. But seriously, you, you should see what Garage Door Pro's customers are saying about the kind of service they received. I'm confident, you know, this is, these are the guys that you need to trust when it comes to garage doors. All right, let's, uh, let's continue on with our, our uh, theme of, uh, I'm here to, to pump you up and give you some inspiration to stand firm. To see if you are really the kind of person who is, is going to stand up when it counts the most. Not avoiding conflict for the sake of avoiding conflict, but not going out there and causing it either. It's just seeking freedom and making sure that the petty tyrants around you understand that this is one person that is just not going to be enthralled to them. See, that's a hard thing to do because right now one of the most dangerous lies believed by a majority of people is that, well, you know, yeah, there may be things that you and I would be immoral for us to do and illegal, but if government does it, suddenly it becomes a moral act. Got a great commentary here from James Corbett, which says, hey, no, government itself is immoral. And it's actually based on an interview that he did with Keith Knight about his book, The Voluntarist Handbook. And he says, this is, uh, this is actually a section of uh, edit- an editorial that uh, was from uh, James Corbett's Five Important Lessons Absolutely No One Will Learn from Iowa. This was from back in February 29th of 2020. So here's James Corbett's take on government itself is immoral. And I love how he puts this. He says, no, I do not want better elections. I do not want to clean up the system. I do not want to get the money out of politics and make sure every vote is counted and drain the swamp so we can make America or any other geographical area great again. Pretty blunt, huh? Well, he says the state is not a benevolent force, despite what the most brainwashed of statists believe. It's not even a neutral tool that can be used for good or ill, as those who consider themselves pragmatists believe. It is violence, it is force, it is aggression. It is people believing that what is wrong for any individual to do is perfectly okay if an agent of the state does it. Now his point being, he says, if I steal, it's theft. If the state steals, it's taxation. If I kill, it is murder. If the state kills, it's warfare. If I force someone to work for me involuntarily, it is slavery. If the state does it, it is conscription. If I can find someone against their will, that's kidnapping. But if the state does it, it's incarceration. Nothing has changed except the label. Now, he says what binds us to the state is the belief that there's a different morality for anything that's been sanctified through the political process. Oh, 50% plus one of the population voted for forced vaccinations. Well, then I guess we have to comply. Oh, don't laugh. People do believe that. Now, he says, if you scoff at that sentence, how about if the vote were 100% minus one? Would that change the morality of the resistance? How about if forced vaccinations were mandated by the Constitution? Then would you be compelled to submit? And he asks the question, does the ballot box transform the unethical into the ethical? Now, the answer is, of course not. But says, I'll tell you what it does do. It makes everyone who casts their ballot a part of the process that legitimizes the murder and violence committed by agents of the state. Now, he says, look, I'm not an efficiency manager for the state. I don't want to help it do its job of inflicting aggression and violence on peaceful people. 
In fact, he says, I want the state to perish, not through violence or bloodshed, but by removing the mystical superstition from the minds of the general public that makes them believe that government is anything other than a gang of thugs with a fancy title. And he says this is the point that in his experience as a communicator of voluntarist ideas, he starts butting up against a brick wall of incomprehension when talking to the normies in the crowd. They start having mental breakdowns, frothing at the mouth that votes need to happen. As if voting, voting rather, elections, positions of responsibility and other things that exist under statism could not exist under voluntary associations. As if voluntary association itself were such an arcane and bewildering concept that no one could possibly wrap their head around it, let alone, heaven fulfend, read a book or two to see if some of their questions on the subject have already been answered. Nah, much easier to go back to the comforting political wrestling match, red versus blue, oh, now that I can get behind. But James Corbett says that's a travesty, really, because the truth is that this is not a complicated message. It's actually remarkably simple and remarkably hopeful. And the message is, the truth is, there is only one vote that matters. Now, he says, you would think that a column like this would be all doom and gloom. Oh, sure, James, the statists in the crowd would say, twirling their handlebar mustaches and fingering the I voted sticker proudly displayed on their chest. But what's your solution? Sitting around and not voting is not going to change anything. I like his answer. He says, uh, Why ask for one solution when I've provided dozens? But he says, more seriously, I would say, you're right. No, really, you're right. Sitting around, not voting is not going to change anything. Yes, by all means, let's vote. But, and you knew there was a but coming, I'm not talking about voting in some phony baloney selection to anoint some political puppet as president of this geographical location. I'm talking about the only vote that matters. If only I had a way to explain this to the normies. Oh, wait, he says, I do. He says, for the rest of us, there is the realization that the political system itself is just another form of enslavement. An enslavement that's all the more insidious because it asks us to buy into it. All we have to do is push a button or pull a lever or touch a screen once every four years, and we're now absolved from our moral responsibility. Now, James Corbett says, ironically, this realization is in itself liberating and puts the world into focus with crystal clarity. We are not cogs in some machine called society to be dictated to by some nebulous entity we've been taught to call the government or the authorities. We are free individuals, freely interacting with those around us, bound by the moral injunction not to initiate force against others or take things from others against their will. He says, we are responsible for our actions and their consequences, both negative and positive. We are are rather responsible for what we do or don't do to help those in our community and to make this world better or leave it to rot. There is no political messiah that will descend from the heavens to tell us what to do or protect us from the bad men. All we have is ourself and our choices. So he says, we vote every day. Not in some meaningless election, but in whom we choose to associate with, what we choose to spend our money on, what we choose to invest our time and energy doing. This is the essence of freedom. And he says, for us, it's painful to watch our brothers and sisters getting swept up in the election cycle hype. We watch the sad spectacle, not with a sense of scorn or derision, but with sadness for those who have not yet woken up to the reality of their mental enslavement. 
That sadness, however, is tempered by hope, hope that one day those poor voters who are trudging off to that vote to that booth to pull that lever will realize that all they're really doing is voting for which slave master they will allow to put the chains around their neck. Wow. That's pretty direct. I love his, uh, but I couldn't have said it better myself. Well, that was him saying it. <laughs> Too bad the people who really needed to hear this message stopped reading this article when they realized it wasn't really about the Iowa caucuses. So, yeah, voting, that's one small thing, but if you, if you take a close look at it, I think it's pretty easy to realize what you do before and after you vote counts a whole lot more as to what happens in your world. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Quick shout out here for lifesavingfood.com. Check it out. It is emergency preparedness supplies, food storage, you know, stuff you could use if times ever got tough. And it's looking like uh, times could be getting tough. So maybe this is a good time to click on the link and see how they can help you. Again, that's lifesavingfood.com. Hey, speaking of eating, you know, the ruling class really seems to think that telling the world to eat bugs and like it is their prerogative. Got a great article here from Jeffrey Tucker reminding us of just how lucky we have been and how come we and, and why we need to stand up to this effort to control our food supply. Pick this up off of uh, zerohedge.com. Jeffrey Tucker says a study earlier this year from four prestigious institutions proclaimed that you should eat bugs and spiders. Oh, and not only that, the study conducted by the by uh nor by by how do you say it? B.I. Norwegian Business School, Chu University, Miyagi University, and Oxford University also said the way to convince people to do this is to have celebrities do it on YouTube videos. Ho, ho, ho. Monkey see, monkey do, huh? Like clockwork, they're suddenly everywhere. In fact, he says you're welcome to look them up. Personally, I find them revolting, as in they make me want to revolt. These are the same folks who pushed for lockdowns, masking, jabs, oh, and war with Russia. Now they say, well, we have to get used to eating bugs because all the other policies they've pushed have dramatically increased world hunger. Indeed, it is reaching a crisis point. He says, for many people, bug eating will soon be the only answer. But he also points that this is just one step before cannibalism. Jeffrey Tucker says, I'm going to take it as a given that the evolution of society selected against bug eating. It's not something people prefer, for example, over eating chicken, fish, beef, and vegetables. In fact, he says, I would further postulate that most people in general would not eat bugs unless they had to. Now, he says, I'm sure there are many venerable bureaucrats at the UN who would dispute the above, but I don't care. There is a name for bug eating, etomophagy. Etomophagy. Anyway, I'm saying it wrong, I'm sure. Sounds fancy. But what it means is living as if there's a famine going on. It's one step before cannibalism and finally eating tree bark. Now, sometimes it happens. And he says, we call those periods of history deeply tragic. It's not what we want. The difference this time is that etomophagy is being pushed by top Hollywood influencers. And when it arrives, the famine will be celebrated on social media. 
Now, this part isn't to scare you, but it is to bring some awareness. Food is already scarce. He says, you've already probably observed the changes that are happening. Restaurants are worried about their profit margins and figuring out ways to work around the squeeze. They're serving mounds of bread and pasta and ever less meat. Even the vegetable portions are getting skimpy. And they can't raise prices the way that gas stations can because they have a regular clientele that watches menu prices very carefully. Even a 50-cent increase can prompt consumer protest. Then the customers end up tipping less, which is a huge disaster for the server staff that make far less than minimum wage. Then the server staff quits at a time of huge shortage. As a result, many are trying to find other ways. So, in addition, we're hip deep into the substitution phase of the great inflation. The pricier items at the store are selling much less, while the cheaper stuff is selling well. So, out with steaks, in with ground beef, chicken is the going thing and not the best cuts, but the cheap ones. Another trend, home gardening. People very naively imagine they will beat inflation by growing their own food, but what they discover is this takes more time than one might expect, and it costs, too, the tools, fertilizer, water, nets to keep the bugs off, and so on. It all adds up. And yes, there are moments of great delight, but it hardly makes a dent in the grocery bill. Meanwhile, he says, people in the first world forget how lucky they really are. Many parts of the world today are facing true food and health crises combined. The world's largest, most established humanitarian organization to deliver food has sounded the alarm. The world faces a global hunger crisis of unprecedented proportions. In just two years, the number of people facing or at risk of acute food insecurity increased from 135 million in 53 countries to 345 million in 82 countries today. Those are some sobering numbers. And Tucker says, we're at a critical crossroads. We need to rise to the challenge of meeting people's immediate food needs at scale, while at the same time supporting programs that build long-term resilience at scale. And the alternative is hunger on a catastrophic scale. Now, we'll be paying the price for many years to come for this mess. He says, of course, the elite want to blame climate change and war, but the real culprit traces to lockdowns and the supply chains that were shattered as a result of government actions. What a disaster. And while it may be easy to dismiss problems around the world as their issues and not ours, Jeffrey Tucker says, I wouldn't be so confident. The food supply in the U.S. has been profoundly affected by the labor shortage, regulatory overreach, inflation, and massive problems in the transportation sector. Federal crop insurance makes its own contribution to lessening supply. That's a program that pays farmers whether they produce or not. It was designed to mitigate against weather risk, but can also create a situation in which it's more profitable to take fields out of production rather than deal with the soaring costs of fertilizer, gas, and labor. And he says there are zero attempts right now in legislation to do anything about this. In addition, there are massive restrictions written in legislation preventing private farmers and ranchers from selling their products commercially unless they use a federal government-approved meat processor. Now, that's simply incredible. Thomas Massey of Kentucky, one of the few really brilliant statesmen in the U.S. today, has tried to introduce legislation to fix this, but it's getting no traction. So his advice is get a cow. In fact, Jeffrey Tucker says you don't need this advice because you already know this, but it's a good time to get a large freezer and stock up. He says many of my own friends have done this. They're also finding ways around the crazy regulations. 
And this is how people get when they start to fear the future. No regulation will stand between us and the desire to eat. Now he says, let's deal with the elephant in the room. Whether and to what extent all of this is deliberate. He says, I resist conspiracy theories, but it is undeniable that many of the elite members of the World Economic Forum believe the world is overpopulated. And not just by a little, but by billions. Is it possible that this food crisis is all being engineered to reduce global population? Well, maybe. He says, we know that Bill Gates has long championed population reduction. He's had his way on everything else, so why not this? Jeffrey Tucker says, one does get the feeling these days of civilization being wrecked by force. And he says, our longevity has been falling for some 10 years, with lifespans shrinking for the first time in centuries. This is a terrifying reality. Combine that with an overall health crisis and a food crisis that seems certain to get worse. Now, he points out two nights ago, he watched the movie Mr. Jones that covers the Stalin-created famine in Ukraine, the Holodomor. Utterly terrifying. And he says it can happen. Famines are nearly always created by governments. When they come, there's no way out. Not even the bug population is large enough to meet our food needs. Now, it's an unjust smear of Marie Antoinette that she ever said, let them eat cake. But he says there is no question that many elites and Hollywood celebs are now telling the world dealing with a serious food crisis, let them eat bugs. Yeah, I'm not real keen on the idea of of eating bugs, all the more so because I believe that uh, the people who are telling us, yeah, yeah, this is what you need to do, are a bunch of uh, usurpers and people who are trying to dominate the world, and I just don't want to go along with it. Besides the fact, I don't really care for the idea of eating bugs. But I think it's time to take a very clear and serious look at uh, where you stand food-wise. And I don't mean, don't, you know, don't go scare yourself. You don't need to run out and buy $20,000 worth of, you know, dehydrated or freeze-dried food. I mean, if I was in a position to do so, I would definitely be thinking that's not a bad idea. But more importantly, there's this concept of provident living in which you provide as many things as you can for yourself. This includes, you know, staying out of debt. This includes, uh, you know, making do with what you have instead of always just, you know, being a consumer, consumer and disposing of everything as soon as it bores you. There's something that happens when you start to take an active role in procuring some of what you use to, to keep yourself alive. Okay, I'll just give you a quick example. Backyard chickens. My own chickens have started to lay, finally, after many months of protecting them and nurturing them and raising them from chicks. Yep, they're finally starting to to crank out the eggs. And I know it sounds weird, so I'm okay if you think that I'm just a little bit nutty for, for saying this, but there is such an intense feeling of satisfaction when you can go out to the chicken coop and collect your own eggs from your own chickens. And these birds trust me to feed them, to water them, to protect them. In return, they provide a very useful source of protein. I'm experiencing the thrill of gardening this year. I don't even like zucchini or squash, but I'm blown away at uh, how much that we're growing and how much we're giving away and sharing with others around us. I can see why this could get addictive. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. If you haven't subscribed to the show notes, please do so by going to thebrianhydeshow.com. At the bottom of my show notes page, you'll see a big subscribe button. Click it. Give me your email address, and away we go. That's really all it takes. Also want to give a shout out here to HSLAmmo.com. Spencer Worthington is the man. He's the guy who founded this company, built it from the ground up, and he provides a wonderful product, that being high-quality, new and remanufactured ammunition. Probably don't have to tell you ammunition is a good thing to have. It's a good thing to have in abundance. With that in mind, click on the link, HSLAmmo.com. So a couple of stories here I wanted to share with you in this segment. Uh, and look, I, I understand for some people this is going to seem like, wow, this is kind of uh, this is kind of scary sounding because uh, we're going to talk about uh, the panic right now that is going on in the ruling class because they are contemplating the loss of their cultural and political dominance. But I'm also going to share with you kind of an interesting historical warning about what's called the Thermidor effect. If you haven't heard of this before, it's something to keep in mind, especially if you find yourself frustrated or sometimes angry or, or even fearful as you see footage of, you know, Antifa out there doing whatever it is they do. This has all happened before. There, there is nothing new under the sun. And frankly, the people who are the most staunch, in-your-face kind of uh, social justice activists, the ones out there, you know, trying to dismantle Western civilization and, you know, to, uh, to sexualize children at every possibility, they are, uh, they are not standing in a good place. They think they have the backing of the corporate world and the political world and all these major institutions that they feel that they've captured but there were some names that they would be very wise to remember, like Trotsky and Robespierre and Rome. And if they don't know what the Thermidor effect is, hang on, I'll tell you about it here in just a second. First off, Clarice Feldman talks about panic at the top. And she says, you know, this is uh, this, this absurd raid on Mar-a-Lago. If it hasn't yet persuaded you that the deep state and their cohorts are terrified about their impending loss of political and cultural dominance, she says, I would encourage you to read this piece by former CIA analyst Martin Gurry. He traces over how the panic with the Wuhan virus, the elites managed a level of control over both the population and the information about the disease and how to treat it. She says, it's a wonderful, thoughtful essay. A summary can't do it full justice. But if you are afraid we cannot get out of the elite chokehold on our culture and political life, this one might give you some comfort. He's optimistic, as few are, that the elites are rightfully panicked that their cultural supremacy is in its last stages. So here's what Martin Gurry has to say. Since conservatives and Republicans are politically strong, but culturally non-existent, they will flex their political muscle to try to right the balance. Virginia and Florida have banned the teaching of certain progressive doctrines in the public schools when Disney... Florida's largest employer, vocally condemned these laws, the company was punished with the removal of local privileges. Should Republicans win Congress and the White House, he says, I would expect American politics to experience a cultural Armageddon. Raw political power can make the cost of cultural monopoly and of idle posturing, Disney style, unpleasantly high. A second threat to the elite culture is the defection of the victim class. The cult of identity generates an insatiable demand for victim groups, which, by necessity, must become ever smaller and more marginal 
not only to the mainstream, but also to traditional minorities. Even as the elites solidified their grip on culture, the focus of their performative outrage was drifting from civil rights and pocketbook issues to more esoteric questions of sexuality and climate justice. Now, the new causes simply don't resonate with Hispanics or blacks, whose socioeconomic interests lie in other directions. He says progressivism is essentially a protection racket. If the elites ever ever lose the undisputed right to shout racism at the producers of culture, the latter will begin to fracture like the rest of the country and to look to the marketplace rather than ideology for inspiration. Now, Martin Gurry says the last countercurrent may be the most potent of all. The internal churning and dispersal of populations spurred by the pandemic and the availability of remote work. Sweeping or such sweeping tides of humanity have always exemplified the central tenet of the American creed. We are not captive to fate. Each wave of immigrants will begin to a strange new story. To tell it, the culture too must be reborn and reinvented. The mold of progressive dogmatism will be shattered in the process. Pretty powerful stuff. I hope it's true. I really do hope that, uh, that this is the way that it should go down. Um, Clarice Feldman says, look, there, there should be panic in the higher echelons of uh, the elite, the political class, the ruling class. Not because we're standing here with pitchforks and torches, but because enough people are starting to open their eyes that uh, they can withdraw their consent. And the beauty of that is you can do that peacefully. Etienne Delaboite wrote about this more than 500 years ago in his discourse on voluntary servitude. Powerful stuff. 18-year-old kid, by the way. But he's right. You don't have to go out the, against them in open you know, Napoleonic warfare. What you got to do is just withdraw your consent. Turn around. Turn your back on the ruling elites. Let them say whatever they want. Let them, let them pass whatever regulation. You will wear a mask everywhere. Nope. Nope, not me. And it's surprising how catching the courage is to stand up and reject what you're being told to do. I know that horrifies people with a, a controlling nature. All right, here's the final thought, and this is I'm going to let you discover this one on your own for the most part. Then comes Thermidor. This is by Mike Conrad. And he says, when the morality of nations becomes too inverted, they collapse and reassemble under tyranny. And the historical record's very clear. So, for instance, in 1789, the French Revolution began. On paper, it looked good. The Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizen was heavily influenced from the American Declaration of Independence. Yet our revolution went from success to success while the French Revolution destroyed itself. As the saying goes, the revolution eats its own. Now, some say the French Revolution went awry because their founding document grounded human rights in the state rather than God as the American Declaration did. But, he says, actually the French Declaration did recognize natural rights as imprescriptible. They were inherent, not inventions of the state, and proclaimed those rights as coming from the Supreme Being. Quote, Therefore the National Assembly recognizes and proclaims in the presence and under the auspices of the Supreme Being the following rights of man and the citizen. And, of course, the French Revolution accomplished positive changes as far as religious freedoms, liberating both Protestants and Jews. So, what went wrong with their revolution? Well, to put it bluntly, the lunatics usurped noble efforts. 
There was no internal break on the French revolutionary government. Maximilien uh, Robespierre and Louis uh, Louis uh, Antoine de Saint Just went insane. All of France's Christian history was tossed to the wind. The revolutionaries tried to stamp out the faith. They started the deistic cult of reason, plundered Notre Dame, and held a festival with an idolatrous worship of the goddess of liberty. All the while, the revolutionary government was killing everyone or anyone even suspected of counter-revolutionary tendencies. Those who were not radical enough were guillotined. In other words, insanity was the order of the day. Finally, Robespierre went one step too far, calling for more executions. The Parliament revolted, and then came the Thermidorian reaction, which led to the effect, which led to the dictatorship of Napoleon, which oddly was still more progressive than most of Europe's monarchs, but far from what the French Revolution had promised. In other words, the revolution led to a dictator. And he talks about what happened a century and a half later, the people of Weimar, Germany. You know, they they were anarchistic and degenerate. In fact, Berlin was the world center of sexual deviancy, as immortalized by playwright Christopher Isherwood and later the movie Cabaret. And so they voted in an authoritarian coalition led by Hitler. But there was a competing power block in the Nazi party under Ernest Röhm a homosexual pedophile, a radical anti-capitalist socialist, and leader of the brown shirts. Frankly, Rome was unstable, just like Robespierre. His antics would have sunk the Nazi party, so the German army told Hitler, get rid of Rome, or we will get rid of you. And then came the infamous Night of the Long Knives. And he goes on to talk about what happened in Soviet uh, Russia after the Russians uh, seized power. If you're not familiar with the case of Leon Trotsky... Maybe you should familiar yourself with uh, familiarize yourself with his name. The warning here is very simple. If the squad, the LGBTQ radicals and BLM activists do not back off on their current attempts to dismantle everything that came before us in America, they will not do any better than these others who were on the receiving end of a Thermidorian reaction. They may think they can rewrite history and human nature, but they can't. If things get that bad, and he says, I hope they don't, they will be the first ones to suffer. The clock will be rolled back far. They won't know what hit them. Because you can only push people so far, and then comes Thermidor. I hope that they'll listen to some common sense here. This is The Brian Hyde Show.